my career, I was part of a uh, very interesting board meeting. I went into uh, the room and all the board members were there and the chairman of the board gave some very specific instructions. And in the process of the meeting, uh, an interchange occurred between the CEO and one of the board members. The uh, CEO made a uh, profane comment toward the uh, board member and uh, the chairman uh, admonished him uh, for his statement and then the CEO just made another profane statement and began to crawl across the conference table to assault the board member. At that point, the chairman of the board, who happened to be a former offensive lineman, uh, quickly grabbed the, the belt as he was on top of the table, grabbed him, sat him down, gave him instructions to be seated and to be quiet. At that, the CEO proceeded to sling some more profanity, got up, and left the boardroom. As you can imagine, that was quite an experience to be a part of as someone who was young, watching people in authority act in a particular way. To try and make things right, a second meeting was organized by the chairman of the board, trying to make things right with everyone who participated in the first uh, board meeting. And so the CEO was asked to make an apology for what happened, and this is what he said. I'm sorry you were offended by how I expressed my anger. <clears throat> Let me say that again, just in case you missed it. I am sorry you were offended by how I expressed my anger. I remember looking at the uh, chairman of the board and saying, are you satisfied with that apology? And he said, yes, I think it's wonderful. I was uh, a little bit taken back by that. But it's a great example for all of us, whether it comes to our marriages, our relationships, our friends, our families, and even the church, how difficult it is for people when they sin to repent. We will give explanations for what we did, but not apologize. We will excuse what we did, but we will not make things right. You can imagine how difficult it is in the secular world when you realize that the example I just gave you was the elder board and the senior pastor of my first ministry. Welcome to ministry, Bruce. The reason why I share that is even in the church, and may I say even especially in the church, we struggle to confess our sins. And I'll even go so far as to say that some may even be good at confessing their sin, but they don't know how to repent. And they don't repent. 
and they wonder why reconciliation is not a part of a, a regular part of their life. Their marriage is always under conflict and strife. The relationship with their children is always estranged, difficult. At work, it's always the other guy. It's my boss who doesn't appreciate my abilities. It's never them. The reason why we're going to discuss this issue is in previous messages as we've covered the book of James, James at the end of chapter 3 has talked about pretenders who are in the church. People who profess to be Christians, and in particular Jewish uh, members who are part of churches, James was writing to fellow Jews who had been part of uh, the diaspora dispersed outside of Jerusalem. And he was challenging those in the church, are you a believer or are you a pretender? And he gives a, a long set of evaluations, tests, for them to look at their own lives and evaluate, am I a genuine believer or am I a pretender? And we saw at the end of chapter 3, there are those who embrace the Word of God and God's wisdom, and there are those who embrace the wisdom of this world. And because of that, they have selfish ambition. They have bitter jealousy. And what's the fruit of that? Conflict and every evil thing. Discord. The word there with discord that we saw is total rebellion against authority. That's the fruit that's in their life. Then we saw at the beginning of chapter 4, uh, he was asking the question is, well, what's the source of all these conflicts that are going on in the church? And so there were issues with conflicts with other people. Then he talks about there's conflicts in your own heart, selfish desires, unmet desires, uh, and it's ultimately resulting in conflict with God because he says you become a, a friend of the world which makes you an enemy of God. So that brings us to where we're going to look at Scripture today. And James is going to offer the solution to the pretender. So it's, it's very important this morning... Uh, this message is, is for not just unbelievers, those who are part of the church, but they've not really surrendered their life to Christ. But I, I just want to challenge every believer here today. Is repentance a regular part of your life? If someone in your family or your spouse were to accuse you of repenting a lot, would you be uh, found guilty? Or would there be no evidence and you would be acquitted? Are you a repenter? And what I've found, uh, as I do uh, disciple people, new believers, uh, as I do biblical counseling for people who've been in the church for 10, 20, 30 years, people don't know how to repent. They don't know what repentance is. They think when they confess something, they repent it. There's confusion on this whole issue of repentance. 
And so what we're going to look at today is probably one of the clearest passages in all of Scripture of how an unbeliever comes to Christ. And so this passage, uh, there's debate on this. There are those that believe this is a passage of repentance for a believer. And then there are those who believe that this is a passage of repentance for unbelievers. I'm coming at it from the stance that this is for unbelievers. And uh, I'll, I'll uh, address why as we progress through the passage. But I just want everybody to know this, this message is for all of us. Are you and I known as humble repenters? Would you pray with me? Lord God, we, we're going to address a difficult issue. Lord, one that is actually pretty simple, but is very difficult to do. Lord, I pray for those who don't know you this morning, Lord, that you would help them to see their need. Lord, that you would touch their hearts and draw them to yourself and that you would bring them to their knees. Lord, for those who know you, but they've forgotten the grace that they've experienced. Lord, they struggle with pride, making excuses and giving justifications. Lord, I pray that today would be a day of humility and grace once again. Lord, may you speak for your glory. Amen. We're going to look at James chapter 4, 6 through 10, but I'm going to start with verse 4 to give context back to what we covered uh, previously. And so I'm going to be using the complete Jewish Bible. And the reason is, is the rendering of verse 5 is consistent with the position uh, that I'll be presenting. And so it's up on the screen uh, if you want to follow along. James chapter 4, starting with verse 4. You unfaithful wives, don't you know that loving the world is hating God? Whoever chooses to be the world's friend makes himself God's enemy. Or do you suppose the Scripture speaks in vain when it says that there is a spirit in us which longs to envy? But the grace He gives is greater. Which is why it says God opposes the arrogant, but to the humble He gives grace. Therefore, submit to God. Moreover, take a stand against the adversary, and He will flee from you. Come close to God, and He will come close to you. Clean your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Wail, mourn, sob. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. There's three points that James wants us to see that are going to be essential, not only, especially for Christian pretenders, but principles that even as believers that we should be applying to our lives that can help us go, especially for the pretender. Notice what it says there in verse six, 
go from being uh, directly opposed by God to being exalted by Him. It's a perfect sandwich of humility. Humility is the key to go from being opposed by God to being exalted by God. How does that happen? Well, it's the good stuff that's in the middle, and it's repentance. And so let's dive in and start with point number one, which is there in verses 5 and 6, which is the internal humility. It's the essential attitude to repent. Again, let me say that again. Internal humility, it's the essential attitude to repent. Let me read again verses 5 and 6. Or do you suppose the Scripture speaks in vain when it says that there is a spirit in us which longs to envy? That's the natural man. What James is saying, we all know from all of Scripture that man's natural tendency is to envy and a lot. That's the point. That's his summary of the first four verses in chapter 4. But there's that wonderful first word in chapter 5. But. But. Or I should say uh, verse 6 there. But the grace he gives is greater, which is why it says God opposes the arrogant, but to the humble he gives grace. What's James saying? Well, he's saying that our hearts naturally long to envy, but the great news is that the grace that God offers and that He gives us is greater than our sinful hearts. Isn't that good news? I don't know about you, but I know what's in my closet. I know the things that I've done, and I know what His grace has covered and what He has transformed in my own life. James admonishes and challenges the spiritual pretender as he's quoting Proverbs 3, verse 34, here in this passage. See, what, what God is saying is that He actively opposes the proud. What does that mean, oppose? It's actually a military term, meaning I'm in full array and I'm coming against you. Because remember what He said there in verse 4, If you're a friend of the world, what are you of God? You're an enemy. You're an enemy. I'm fully arrayed in military armor, and I'm coming after you. He's opposed to the proud. What is the word there in the Greek for the word proud? William Barclay says this about the word hupoaphanous. He says, this word literally means one who shows himself above other people. And that's what hooper means is to be above. I see myself as I'm better than other people. Even the Greeks hated this kind of pride. Theophrastus, a Greek writer, described it as, quote, a certain contempt for all other people. Theophylact, how's that? These two names, if you can say them twice, forwards and backwards, you'll get a prize later. Uh, Theophylact, a Christian writer, actually said, This type of pride is the citadel and summit of all evils. The real terror of this kind of pride is that it's a thing of the heart. It's an internal problem. Pride itself shuts itself off from God for three reasons. Here are the three reasons why this pride shuts out God. 
first one. It doesn't know its own need. It walks in proud self-sufficiency. Number two, it cherishes, cherishes its own independence. Not only will he not be beholden to any man, he's not going to be beholden to God. Number three, it does not recognize its own sin. This type of pride cannot receive help. Why? Because it doesn't know that it needs help. It cannot ask. It loves itself, not God. James is warning the pretender that God will oppose the defiant sinner. That is not only self-centered, but worships himself. This man is an enemy of the true God and has no part of his grace. Instead, in response to that kind of pride, God wants to give his greater grace to those who respond to him with a heart attitude of humility. In the Old Testament, God said it this way, the end of Isaiah. When he was talking about the end of time and talking about judgment, this is what he said. To this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of heart, and who trembles at my word. In the New Testament, Jesus, in his famous Sermon on the Mount, he started his first beatitude with this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the humble. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, James wants us to know that pride is the root of all sin and that humility is the root of all righteousness. When self-concern is replaced with concern for God's glory, God's Spirit can work His sovereign and gracious will in our hearts, changing it from being an enemy to becoming a friend of God. So here's the question. When a person humbles themselves and they repent from self-worship, what does that repentance look like? What does that look like? Many times when I'm involved in counseling, you'll point out scriptures, gives a command, it gives a suggestion, uh, it gives um, an example. And many times people will say, I know that, but I don't know how to do that. I know that, but I don't know how to do that. And so James is saying, if you want to go from being an enemy of God to his friend, you need to repent. And you first need to have an attitude of humility And then what does repentance look like? And what we're going to see is that James gives us nine commands that spell out very clearly what it means to repent. And then he gives a tenth command as a summary of the first nine. So let's dive in on uh, point number two. How does a person repent? And point number two is external fruit of humility, repentance in action. How do we do that? 
Well, let's look at verses 7 through 9 again. Therefore, if you've responded in humility, submit to God. Moreover, take a stand against the adversary and he will flee from you. Come close to God and he will come close to you. Clean your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Wail, mourn, sob. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. So what are these nine commands that James provides for us to understand what repentance looks like? And again, the context here is for someone to come to Christ for the first time. What does that look like? And unfortunately, the reason why this is so important is what do we know is true about America and the church? We have many who walk an aisle, shed a tear, make a profession, and never change. They never repented. They never placed faith. So that's why this is so important. Many times, even in counseling, when people come in and they talk about why it is they're not experiencing the joy of the Lord, it's because they don't know the Lord. They find out they're not a believer. That's why they're not experiencing it. They've never repented. That's why this is so important. You don't want to wait till Judgment Day to get fine points from Jesus on the difference between confession and repentance. It's a little late. We want to make sure it's clear today so that we know that when we stand before Him, we're confident of where we are with Him. So let's start with the first one, verse 7. Submit to God. Responding to God's offer of salvation starts by submitting to His authority. Now, I don't know about you, if you remember, but there's a big debate out there about, do I just believe in Jesus as my Savior or as my Lord? Right? I can do, he can just be my Savior, but He doesn't have to be my Lord. That's the point of point one. What do you do when you submit? Someone else is calling the shots, and I'm coming under. And the word here, literally submit, means I submit myself under the authority of another. That's literally what that word means. So when someone says, well, I want Jesus to be my Savior, but I want to call the shots in my life, they don't understand step one of what it means to repent. See, the first sin was rebellion against God's authority. So to get back in the garden, we have to submit to it. There's no other terms. A pretender must forsake the lie that they can be a friend of God while being the Lord of their own life. It's a lie. It's not true. The question is, for you and I, is have we been willing to surrender control of our life to submit to Him. Number two, the second step of repentance is to take a stand against the adversary and he will flee from you. If you have the NASB, it says to resist the devil. God makes it clear here in these two first uh, verbs 
that we have to submit and resist. He makes it very clear you can't worship two kings. Can't worship two kings. You have to submit to one and resist the other. No neutral ground. That's why it says, no servant can be the slave of two masters, for he'll either hate the one and love the second. He'll scorn the second and be loyal to the first. You can't be a slave to both God and money. Jesus made it very clear there is no neutral ground. You're either in one of two camps, and you can't be friends with both. Good news here, by the way, in this little passage, especially for those who've come in and been a part of very life-controlling sins. There's a feeling that I can never be free, I can be never victorious, uh, or there's a feeling that uh, I can never get free from Satan. Uh, it's very important here. Notice what it says, that if you resist the devil, what's the promise that's here? He will flee from you. He will flee from you. Very, very important. If I stand in the truth of the gospel, he, has, he no longer has any power or authority over me. I'm no longer his. That's great news for everyday living. I know I am God's, and he that is in me, the Spirit, is greater than he that is in the world. Question, are you and I willing to forsake Satan to embrace Christ or are we still trying to hold on to both number three we're commanded to come close to God and he will come close to you I don't know about you but I know it was true for me Uh, when I was not sold out for Christ there were times I didn't want to see him I wanted to ignore him I didn't want to be seen I wanted to avoid didn't want to have fellowship. Have you ever experienced that where there's a conflict between you and someone else and you all of a sudden see him at the grocery store? All of a sudden, I think I need to go get something in the frozen section. Okay, right? We avoid. We ignore. When there's broken relationship. What, what uh, James is saying is your past life has been running from God. And now I'm saying, draw near. And he will draw near to you. Genuine repentance involves wanting to draw near to God and to enjoy the privilege of having a relationship with our Savior. Jeremiah said, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. God wants to have fellowship with us. He says in Hebrews 4, Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that you may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean. Notice that. Clean from an evil conscience. When is it we don't want to get eye contact with someone? It's when we know there's a guilt. You know, it's like the eyes of the window of the soul. I can't even look at them. I can't look at them. My conscience is bothering me. 
God is saying, please come to the throne of grace because your conscience has been wiped clean. Come. Draw near. In every covenant, God promised to be near His covenant people. Notice how when God uh, was upset with the Israelites and He said, I'm just going to leave you right now and you guys go up to the promised land. Remember what Moses said? No, don't do that. You in our presence is what makes us unique. That's what makes us special. Where was God when the children of Israel were leaving uh, Egypt? He was right there in the middle of the camp. I am with you. What did Jesus say when we were going to go, being commanded to go and make disciples of all nations? And He says, I am even with you until the end of the age. He wants to be with us. What did He give us when we gave our lives to Christ? The indwelling Spirit. He's with us. Can't be any more with us than that. And yet, is it not amazing as Christians that we can try and avoid the God that's within us? And that's why Scripture talks about grieving the Holy Spirit. He's right here, and yet I want to try and act as if He's as far away as possible when I'm in the middle of wanting to do something sinful. Repentance is, I'm no longer running from God. I'm willfully obeying the command to draw near. Draw near. Question. Do you desire to draw near to God? Relationally? Do you want to draw near to Him and have Him draw near to you so you could experience fellowship? Or do you want Jesus or just His gifts? See, fellowship is I want Him. I want Him. For many, they just want His toys that He brings. I want forgiveness of sins. I want the gift of eternal life. But if Jesus weren't in heaven, I'm okay with that. As long as it's heaven. Number four. Repentance is the command to clean your hands, sinners. James is challenging pretenders to turn away from their sinful behaviors. So he's talking about the external hands. He's saying, clean your hands. In the Old Testament, the priests were commanded to cleanse their hands and their feet physically and to offer a burnt offering to cover the sin inside them before they went into the presence of God. Don't, don't go into the presence of God with unclean hands, unclean feet, and an unclean heart. That's why Jesus said it's out of the heart. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, I got ahead of myself. That's the next point. Uh, so the key here is, is that James is encouraging us to repent of our deeds that are evil and dishonor God. And he's saying, purify your hands, sinners. And the word there, sinners, in every use in the New Testament, refers to unbelievers. Those who hold to the view that this passage is talking to believers say this is the only exception. 
When he says, you sinners, he's talking to those who need to repent and come to Christ. Jesus said, go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for it had not come to call the righteous, but sinners. That's the exact same term in the Greek that Jesus used there. So here's the question for you and I. Has your repentance and my repentance to become a believer included forsaking yours or my favorite sin? Well, I want Jesus and forgiveness, but I want to continue in my favorite sin. I want both. Jesus, James here, repeating what Jesus said, no, I've got I to clean my hands. And that's a command. Have you and I done that? Number five, we're commanded to purify our hearts, you double-minded. Where else do we see that phrase, double-minded, in the Bible? In James. He uses it repeatedly. Why? Because he's talking to people who are double-minded. They're going two different ways. Yes, I believe in Jesus. No, I want to do what I want. Yes, I, I am sold out to him. I'm doing what I want. He admonishes those who are double-minded. Remember in first one, those who are looking for wisdom, he says, and you ask of God, and he says, you're not going to receive that wisdom from God. Why? Because you're double-minded. So double-minded is referring to someone who's not made a decision to be sold out. They're pretending. On the outside, they're going through the motions, making it look good, but on the inside, they're going a completely different way. Some are better at hiding it than others. And that's why James uses the exact same term here. And he said, uh, first of all, your external behavior, you need to purify that. And then now he's saying here, your internal part. So again, your external and internal are united. And what he's saying is, purify your heart. You double-minded. Question, has your repentance toward God, including surrendering to Him, not only your external behavior, but the desires of your inner heart, are they the Lord's? The next three, wail, mourn, and sob, are one-word commands. And we'll just clump them all together here because they go together. And actually, they go together with uh, the ninth one as well. Wail, mourn, and sob. And in essence, they're saying you should be broken about your sin to the point where your view of what you've done is you're grieved in your heart about what you've done. To mourn is literally feeling pain internally. Weeping is it's actually externally coming out because it's so deep that you realize that what you did was a grave sin against a holy God. This is not, I'm upset because I have bad circumstances right now. This is mourning like you've lost a loved one. And you realize that because of your sin, you deserve to have lost your life. 
and experience hell. You realize that you violated God's holiness. You rebelled against Him. You were actively, not just passively, you were actively opposing Him. And you now understand what you've done, and you're broken. Broken. And that's why the ninth one there says, Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. It's not saying that we can't have uh, joy or laughter. It's just saying you fully understand. Again, he's talking about repentance here. You're not going to make glib jokes about, well, remember the time we did that sin? Remember the time we were with our buddies partying, making light of that? That's what he's saying here. Don't make light of your sin. It was not minimal. It was worthy of my own son dying for that. Do you understand? So that brings us to point three. Which is verse number 10. And that is the rewards of humility to be exalted by Christ. James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. He will exalt you. We started with humility as the essential attitude that was required for a person to repent, for a pretender to go from, I'm playing the game, to where, you know what, I'm going to get serious and get right with God. Humility is the key. Remember we talked about Pride is what kills, because pride says, I don't have a need. I'm fine where I'm at. Humility is saying, I know I need a Savior. I know I'm deserving of judgment. I know I deserve the wrath of God. And I'm grateful for His grace, which I don't deserve. And I am very, very well aware of my sin and why I don't deserve that grace. So that was point one. Point two is genuine humility responding to grace acts in repentance. It acts in repentance. That's why it says, you see uh, John, uh, you see it in Acts when Paul is preaching, do the deeds appropriate to repentance. What did he say to the Pharisees? Don't, don't come here and just sit and watch what I'm doing here, gentlemen. Do the deeds appropriate to repentance. Don't just say, confess, do the deeds appropriate to repentance. That's why there's nine commands here. Make it very clear. And then he sums it up with a tenth command of, again, reminding, he sandwiches it. You can't repent without uh, humility. And if you are humble, he reminds you, if you're willing to repent because of the grace that you need, you will be exalted. Credible motivation for you and I to turn to God, to humble ourselves, and to repent. Can I just say real quick before I finish? What breaks my heart when I'm involved in people's lives wanting to come along and help. What breaks my heart 
is the number of Christians who forget this passage and think it doesn't apply to them now that they're Christians. We all sin every day. And what breaks my heart is when I hear, when I'm talking with a couple and in the marriage, uh, I was... I was... Less right than you. Can't say it. Can't admit they're wrong. Just can't do it. They can give you an excuse. They can give you a justification. They can even give you an explanation. And then they wonder why they're in my office and there's broken relationship. What's the context of this passage? Four verses where James is saying there's conflict everywhere in this church. And what's the solution? Humility that results in repentance. Now he's addressing the pretender. But I say to you, does it not offend to the believer or apply to the believer? How are we going to have unity in the church? How are we going to have unity in marriages, in the family? And here's what breaks my heart. When I uh, was a youth pastor for 14 years, the dad who never admits he's wrong. The self-righteous mother who rags on dad, always in the kids' business, never admits she's wrong. And then they wonder why their family is always in an uproar. Then you have the next family where mom and dad, they confess all the time. But the kids are enraged. Why? The parents never repent. They just confess. And they do it again tomorrow. And then the next day. And then the next day. My challenge for all of us as believers, you and I should be connoisseurs of humble pie. Every one of us, a daily dose, a daily dose of humility keeps conflict away. Are you and I willing to humble ourselves and admit that we're wrong and then do the deeds appropriate to repentance and change. That takes courage. But I found those who are courageous usually are very humble because they know they need God. And that's why they're courageous. Let's pray.